4. As we continue this series in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're uh, visiting with us, um, maybe you've been a few times, maybe not. Maybe you're making assumptions just on the the couple of weeks you've been here. Uh, Let me just take a second uh, while you're looking for Ecclesiastes 4 um, to um, sort of call your attention to our philosophy of um, at least of preaching, if not of of worship itself. But it's our practice um, generally, typically, to be preaching through books of the Bible. Um, we try to bounce back and forth between Old and New Testaments. We try to, I try to balance length of books and length of series and, and those sorts of things. We've uh, taken breaks from time to time to do uh, topical series, um, things like church officers uh, during the nomination process. We've done a series on the Apostles' Creed, the the phrases found there. Um, But uh, if you've been a couple of weeks and are thinking, well, let's see, last week was Ecclesiastes 3 and this week is Ecclesiastes 4. um, Yes, you are on safe ground if you just assume uh, that next week is going to be Ecclesiastes 5. That's kind of how we operate. That way we all hear what God's Word has to say to us, you don't hear what I want to say to you. Uh, it means we get to passages that sometimes I'd rather not preach, and we've had some of those. Um, those that make you uncomfortable with children in the room, uh, things of that sort. But we are at um, at the command of uh, God's guidance in that in. Uh, as we go book by book through his word. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to look at the whole, uh, uh, the whole chapter. If you're able, let me ask that you stand as we read these 16 verses of Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king 
who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, as the author of these words, uh, that you would be at work in and through them now. Use them uh, to root out sin in our lives, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. In the uh, 60s, um, and y'all have gotten used to the fact that there's a running theme here. We're sort of the book of Ecclesiastes as viewed through the eyes of musicians over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years. In the 60s, or 50 or 60 years. In the 60s, Harry Nielsen wrote a song that uh, Three Dog Night made famous uh, when they... Uh, released their version of it a couple of years later. Uh, it's a song that resonates with all of us. We all get it. We all understand. We all hear the very first line of the song, and we go, yes, we agree with that. Even introvert people um, who, who appreciate quiet solitude can recognize the difference between quiet solitude and loneliness. We all can agree with Three Dog Night that one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Solomon agrees. Uh, Solomon tells us exactly that story, but he does it not with a song. He does it, something even better perhaps, with math. He walks us through math. My wife's shaking her head back there. Math. He walks us through a, a mathematical system in this chapter. He examines sort of events of life, but he counts. It's simple math. You can handle this. It's, it's just counting. The youngest person in the room can handle the math from Ecclesiastes 4. And let me just, just in case anybody notices or cares or would have any knowledge, I have to give credit where credit's due. The math thing, the outline I'm using for this sermon came from one sentence in one commentary where he was actually quoting somebody else. I, I just want to make sure I, I wish I was this smart. But first, I want you to notice in Ecclesiastes 4 that zero is better than one or two. Zero is better than one or two. The preacher looks out, verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. He looks out at the world around him and he sees groups of people being mistreated for no reason. There are people with power. There are people with authority. In fact, he says as much in verse 2. There are people who have power and authority over others and they're using it 
for their own benefit and to the pain and hurt and oppression of this other group of people or these other groups of people. Those in power, those in office, those with rank and authority are putting down, and you notice the word oppressed kept coming up in the first three verses of the chapter. I saw the oppressions, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and on the side of their oppressors, he keeps using the same word, changing the form to make sure we understand this is a matter of oppression. This is not a matter of something else. This isn't simple law and, and law-abiding citizens. This is rulers who are keeping groups of people oppressed. And twice in these first three verses, the preacher, Solomon, calls attention to the real problem. Yes, the oppression is a problem. Yes, the oppression is, is the occasion for the issue. But notice that twice he actually calls attention to the fact that those who are oppressed, verse 1, had no one to comfort them. Twice, there's no one there to give them comfort. We think of the word comfort. I don't know, a, a kid falls and skins her knee and goes running to mom or maybe to grandma who's kind of patting her hand. There, there, it'll be okay. Um, this is more than that. This isn't a pat on the hand, a kiss on the forehead, um, a little iodine on the scrape to make it all go, you know, whatever. This is someone who actually can solve the problem of the oppression itself. Someone who can share or bear the weight, the pain, or perhaps even remove those who are causing the oppression. It has more to do with alleviating oppression whether through sharing the burden or addressing the oppressor himself. And you can see just how bad the problem is. It's bad enough that Solomon would say, oh, to be one of the people who have already lived and died and not to be facing and dealing with this oppression in this life any longer. Those who have already lived and died are better off than those who live under this oppression. That's his observation. And then he realizes there's actually a better group out there. Better yet, those who have not yet been born and have never seen this trouble, have never seen these kinds of trials, have never seen this kind of mistreatment of others. You see, the people that have lived and died have perhaps been oppressed or perhaps been oppressors. But those who have never lived have never ever tasted the evil deeds that are done under the sun to use his language in verse 3. Zero is better than one or two. Better to have had zero years of life than to have any. Now, don't be too quick 
to jump on Solomon here. The immediate reaction for me is, dude, that's, that's kind of harsh. Like that's, that's almost mean. But what does Jesus say about Judas? When Judas is about to betray him, he outright says in Mark 14, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Yes, Judas was appointed for that task. He was one of the twelve in order to betray Jesus. That was foretold hundreds of years before Christ. And yet even Jesus can say of Judas, it would have been better if he had not been born at all. Zero is better than one or two. Zero years of life are better than having already lived and died when oppression is involved. It's better than living under oppression. It's better having already endured it. There are two problems as Solomon sees them. The problem of the oppression and the loneliness of the one who has to endure it without anyone to bring comfort. Remember Job's friends? Job in the first chapter 2 of, of Job is dealing with I mean, he's lost everything. We won't recount Job here. You can read that this afternoon. And his friends show up and they sit down with him. He's there in the sackcloth and ashes and repenting and, and whatever. And his friends come and they sit. And they sit. And they sit. And they sit. They brought him comfort. They would have been better off never speaking. Once they opened their mouth... That's where they got in trouble. But until then, there's somebody sharing the burden of this oppression that Job had to go through. Zero is better than one or two. Second, I want you to see that one is better than two. Verses four through six. The preacher turns his attention and he sees people who labor, who work, who get up in the morning who take a shower, who put on clothes, who leave the house and go and do their jobs wherever that may be and come home again. But notice what's fueling their work. Their labor is fueled by envy. Our next door neighbor just put a pool in. Our across the street neighbor just bought an old classic car had it delivered Friday got a text from John a couple of weeks ago as he's uh, working up in Chattanooga sends a picture of the house he's working in uh, nice sweet Ferrari in the garage you know how it is there, there's there's that nice new bathroom that kitchen that house that whatever that fuels our work. It's, it's the stuff of life. And, and the preacher looks and sees somebody who, whose work is fueled by envy of what his neighbor has or 
what he wishes he had. He wants to keep up with the Joneses. It's that, that deep desire to keep up with what everybody else around me has. And, and you know what? If they can have it, then certainly I can too. You know what happens to people that work like that, right? They work extra long hours and avoid their family. Their kids wonder who they are. Their spouse wonders who and where they are. You ignore church responsibilities or, or other responsibilities. You'll step on co-workers to get that promotion, to get that recognition. You'll, in order to climb the corporate ladder, you'll whisper things bad about your co-workers so that you look good, so that you get the raise, so that you get the benefits. You know all those temptations, all those, those struggles. Now look, notice he doesn't say, therefore don't work. Work is not a four-letter word. Okay, it's a four-letter word. But it's not a four-letter word. It's not a bad word. Work existed before sin entered the world. But the problem is not work and it's not stuff. It's work fueled by the envy of others. One writer actually sort of made the comment, uh, this is the kind of person that... Um, at their funeral, you will send flowers because you ought to, not because you want to. It's, it's that kind of worker who has nobody else, who has no others. Verses 7 and 8 sort of describe him as, I mean, he doesn't have, he has no other, or some versions will say he has no second. Notice Solomon says, verse 6, We're better with one handful with quietness than having two hands full with strife and envy and conflict. Work fueled by envy is vanity. It's a striving after wind. It's meaningless. It's valueless. It's purposeless. You gain nothing from it. Remember, this was his question all the way back in verse 3 of chapter 1. What does man gain from all his toil? Where's the, the, the meaning, the value, the purpose for man in his work? It's not found in work fueled by envy. Pursuit of fortune and fame at the risk of relationships, Solomon says, is not worth it. One, one handful with quietness is better than having two hands full, but with toil and a striving after wind. Zero is better than one or two. One is better than two. Third, I want you to see that two are better than one. Verses 7 through 16. Notice what happens to the person who labors even to the point of losing those people around him. He has, uh, verse 8, no second. No son, no brother. The two closest male uh, relationships that we know. No one to, to sort of the context 
to share the load of the work, no one to enjoy the results of the work with, no one to share the fruits of your labor with. He has no heir. He has nobody to leave uh, this inheritance to. And it appears he has a sizable inheritance. Verse 8, For whom am I toiling of depriving myself of pleasure because of all the work I'm doing, I'm depriving myself of some of the joys and pleasures of life. And he's sort of realizing, or he's actually not asking the question, why am I doing this? I have no one to leave these things to. Not only am I not enjoying them, but there's no one around me to share them with. He's de- depriving himself of pleasure in order to work harder to get more stuff that he can't enjoy. We know that cycle. But that cycle describes our world, doesn't it? It's, it's the, the quote, and I've used it before, from John D. Rockefeller. As, as wealthy as he was, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough to make you happy? And his answer was, just one more dollar. Think of all the times we've said, well, if only I had blank, then I would be fine. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would have enough. Then I wouldn't need any more. Then I wouldn't hurt for. It's the pattern of the world in which we live. This stuff that I'm working for will bring me pleasure, except... I don't ever take the time to enjoy it because I'm too busy working for more stuff. There's an illustration of a king in verses 13 to 16 who's similar. A king who's old and and foolish. And it appears he's no longer taking advice from anyone. It appears he's run everybody off around him. He has no advisors um, uh, and and he's trying to to rule on his own, even in his foolishness, and and of course, foolishness without any advisors leads to only more foolishness. And yet he's replaced by a younger man who's surrounded by people who who gains advice and wisdom and insight from others. Two are better than one. Better to have someone to share all of that with. In fact, he he gives us illustrations of why two are better than one in verses 9 to 12. Those, Those times when you had a backup. You see in verse 10. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to him who falls and is alone and has no one to give him a hand up. You, you know the stories, you've heard the stories that travel in the ancient Near East uh, was dangerous. You just never knew. You know, they didn't have street lights. You didn't have cell phones. You, know, you just have to picture that world where there could be danger around any corner and you wouldn't know it. And so you traveled in groups in order to stay safe. If one trips and falls, there's another to to throw a hand down and help them back up again. Or 
verse 11. It, it gets cold at night. And you're traveling and it gets it, it, temperatures drop and, and two people can stay warm together because they can keep each other warm. Shared body heat means shared warmth and safety. Or verse 12, there's strength in numbers. You realize I, I, I'm a little bit fascinated by this. Athens State University has police call boxes. You, you know, there's the post with the blue light at the top. And on that post is a box. And, and if you get in trouble, you're walking around at night, you get nervous because I think somebody's following me or somebody's trying to attack me. You can go to one of those blue lights and press a button and it'll call uh, the local police or the campus police or whatever. I'm fascinated that a place as small and as, you know, as safe as Athens seems, that it has police call boxes on the Athens State campus. Those exist because every year at freshman orientation, especially girls are told, you just don't walk around campus at night alone. Go with a group. Be with a bunch of people. There's safety in numbers. And Solomon said that a couple thousand, several thousand years ago. Two are better than one. Contrast that with the solitary worker in verses 7 and 8. With the advisorless king in verses 13 to 16. Solomon calls us to live a life where two are better than one. Zero is better than one or two. One is better than two. Two is better. Two are better than one. And finally, three are better still. Verse 12. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Okay, no, that's not a reference to the Trinity. That, that would be a, a, a random, out of nowhere sort of reference. No, I don't think it's husband, wife, and God, or husband, wife, and Jesus. I think it's simply a Hebrew practice of saying we go from zero to one to two. And by adding the next number, you are emphasizing the truth of what you are teaching, of what you are saying. We read this in Proverbs 6, uh, Proverbs 16. Uh, we read there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. It's a, a way of adding emphasis and of um, uh, adding sort of confidence and, and, and truth and weight to what you are saying. By adding one, the list becomes more complete. It's, it becomes a better list than the list before. In other words, the message of Ecclesiastes Four is clear. One is bad. Two is good. Three is even better. Let me make a couple of applications from this chapter. The first is this. You and I as believers are called to comfort those who are being oppressed. You and I are called to alleviate oppression. 
We should be those kinds of comforters. We should be able to say, well, this person or that group, they can't say there's no one to comfort them because we, as God's people, are there with them to alleviate oppression, to bring comfort to those who need it. A second application. Uh, If you haven't seen The Incredibles, it means that you're missing out. Um, And some of you, if you need to borrow some kids to make it acceptable for you to watch The Incredibles, we'll find some for you and send them your way. Um, There's a scene in The Incredibles where um, uh, Mr. Incredible is trying to save a cat out of a tree. It's really early on. And, And the cat won't get... So he picks the tree up and shakes the cat out of the tree. And then quickly turns and throws the tree into the street to stop a robber who's getting away from the cops. And then he goes and gets back in his car. And when he gets back in his car, there's somebody in the passenger seat. It's this kid named Buddy who's calling himself Incredible Boy. I'm your biggest fan. I'm your number one fan. I can be your sidekick. Do you remember what Mr. Incredible said? Fly home, buddy. I work alone. You and I are called not to live the Christian life like Mr. Incredible. We don't work alone. We don't live the Christian life alone. We're called to a group, to a family, to share, uh, encourage to, uh, to bless one another, to bring comfort and hope. Mr. Incredible didn't want a sidekick. We want Robin. We want a second. We want to have, verse 8, another. We're not called to live a solitary Christian experience. That means... We're not making a habit of staying away. Look, this is different times. I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out. We're in COVID and stuff. You know, they got that COVID on. Uh, I get it. I understand. But it should not be our normal practice to stay away when God's people gather together. It's the message of the Bible. It's not just the message of Ecclesiastes 4. Philippians 2 tells us to look out for the interests of others, not only for our own. 1 Corinthians 12 describes the church as a body. It can't describe that if we live the Christian life like Mr. Incredible. I live alone. I work alone. I operate alone. Finally, let me make this application. Let me introduce you to the friend who sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 18.24. Those of you in Christ, those of you trusting in Him and Him alone for your salvation, He has promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never turn my back on you. You always, we as believers, always have a second. And that second is Christ Himself. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the
hope, the promise, the assurance, the comfort uh, of knowing that, um, that Christ will never leave us, that He will never turn His back on us. Uh, we pray that we would be a people who brings comfort to uh, those who are being oppressed, to those who need it, that we would be people who labor uh, for you and not for ourselves, who labor to the honor and glory of Christ and for the good of your people and not for our own glory, not for our own name, not for our own stuff and not out of envy of others. And we pray that you would grow in us more and more a longing for shaking off one that we might celebrate and enjoy two, three, four, and more. For our spiritual good and for the honor and glory of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen.